This is Alan Shipnuck back for another podcast for the Knockdown. I am joined by Michael Bamberger, who hates doing these but puts up with it anyway. Michael, thank you for your indulgence. Delighted. <laughs> That's a lie. Should the listeners know uh, how relatively well shaven you are? Let's talk about what really matters: the Masters. Uh, it's on the horizon. We're excited. It's a good event. When you, it's a pretty good event. When you look ahead to that week in Augusta, what do you look forward to the most? Seeing my friends, um, hanging out. Uh, spring, uh, the tradition of it, honest to God, you know, the fact they really do do history very well there, and you can't go there if you care about the game like we do. You can't go there and, and not think about uh, the people who have come before Tiger. Um, I think you really do feel a connection to Arnold and Big Jack and guys who didn't get it done like Wisecuff and Trevino. And I think for me, and I've been thinking about this since Jenkins died, you know, Jenkins wrote the winner. No, I'm not even remotely for a second here putting myself in the same category as Jenkins, but I like, I, like, I like writing losers. And Augusta National is every bit as much about the loser and unrequited love um, as it is winning. Uh, so it really is golf. Yeah, I mean, that, that's well said. When you think about Shark and Ernie Els and Johnny Miller. Venturi. I, Venturi. God, he had like five chances to win. Uh, I mean, you can go on down the list. It, it's incredible how many great players didn't win the Masters because it was in it was in their head and they just they just couldn't perform. Yep. You know. Yep. And then the one. And then there are guys for whom it really is their shining moment, like Chris DeMarco, Orlando Matisse, guys who are you know they got in a playoff, and they'll carry that around for the rest of their lives. Because people won't let them forget anyhow. Because so many people watch that tournament. Your yeah. grandmother watches. Oh, I mean, it's just it's just different. It's I'm, neat. I'm, it's neat. It, it is. is. I'm on there's nothing rec- like it. I'm on record as, as being a little grossed out by the treacly piano music oh. and, and all the, the reverential tones and the, the stupid code words we have to use, you know, patrons and all that. But when I think about Masters Week, I get excited for Masters Sunday because it is the most exciting day in the sport except for maybe a Ryder Cup that's closed. But, the, we, you know, year in, year out, the, the Masters, it just delivers. And, I mean, I can think of Sundays when I was driving to the golf course, I was nervous. <laughs> I mean, part, partly was, you know, I knew I, this is like, especially in the SI days, I had to write a huge story on a tight deadline for discerning readership. But it was also just general butterflies. I, I know this is going to be a crazy day. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't wait to watch it, and like I felt that. So imagine, you know, imagine your Roy McIlroy with a four-shot lead. You know, um, did you feel when you were writing for Sports Illustrated? You know, we talked about Arnold and Trevino and guys who came before Tiger. When you were writing on Deadline uh, for Sports Illustrated magazine, um, did you think about uh, Riley and Jenkins and Herb Wind and others who came before us? Yeah, I would say early in my career that I mean that's a challenge for all writers. You have to filter out all those other voices in your head, you know, of, of your influences and the people you admire and the people who came before you. So I can, I can remember sitting, generally speaking, I've been lucky on all, most of my games. I know exactly how I want to start the story before I sit down to write it. But there's, there's a couple times when I didn't get, there wasn't a stolen moment. There wasn't uh, some bit of reporting or observation or something that I just, when it happens, I know instantly it's going to be my lead. But there's been times when I haven't had that. And only a few, but I remember sitting over the keyboard like, how would Dan Jenkins write this? And you write a paragraph in his voice. No, nah, that's not very good. Let me try. Let me try a Riley lead. No, nah, that's not very good. You know, let me let me clear my throat like Herb Wind here in six paragraphs. You know, um, and I mean that's the recipe for disaster when you're on deadline. And, and then you went for Garrity. 
<laughs> Bensicle. You guarantee. Oh, guarantee, yes. Uh, our beloved colleague, John Garrity, yeah. I wish my prose was as elegant as John's, but... That's uh, a very, very high standard and possibly high standard. He's such an elegant writer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're aware of those people because I've been reading them and I reread them, and, and, and especially in the younger, my younger days, I would often read tons of SI game stories that week because I'm looking for nuggets or it's relevant because... Um, you know, Norman's in, in contention in 96, and so you go back and you read the 86 game story to remember how he lost to Jack. And because um, you know, those were fact checked, and those, those are to me are more reliable than the old newspaper stories, and you don't have the internet database then. So, I, to me, SI was a gold standard for just information as well as entertainment. So, yeah, now, now I don't worry about that at all. I mean, I've, as with you, we kind of have our own voice, and you trust it over time, and you, you, you just go with it. But for sure, and I mean, it's a little pompous, but I used to say, like, being being the golf writer at SI, as both of us were, that's like playing center field for the Yankees. You know, there's there's quite a lineage. It goes for, it goes from Herb Wind to, to Dan Jenkins to Rick Riley. I mean, that's a half a century of, you know, epic golf writing. And then we came along. And, and, and even uh, if you're only Bobby Mercer, you're still in center field for the New York Yankees. <laughs> yeah. So it's like it was it was definitely a thing. Um our, our roles have changed a little bit. The, the nature of, of the of the golf media has changed. Uh, you know, when I think when when Jenkins especially was writing those stories, a lot of people got their magazine. They didn't even know who'd won the Masters. Mm. They were learning for the first time who hmm. won the Masters. Interesting. You know, in the '60s, it wasn't yeah. on that. It wasn't on TV very much. People didn't have access. I, I, I am positive a lot of readers were like, "Oh, hey, Jack Nicklaus won the Masters. That's cool." Uh-huh. Obviously, no. By Sunday night, it feels old now because it's been picked over in, in a million different ways by just as many people. And so I think one of the great strengths you bring to, to all your reporting, but especially off of Augusta National, was, well, I should have said writing, but the root of the writing for you has always been the reporting. And I wonder, do you have game plans going into how you're going to tackle the reporting on a Sunday at, at Augusta? Yeah, well, it definitely starts on Saturday. And this, this is a little pleasure of mine is... The, when all everyone's in the press room typing, usually I'm um, I'm sneaking around into the locker room, the driving range, the putting green, the parking lot. Saturday often, night. Saturday night. Often the only person I see is you. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're both we're both information gatherers at heart, and we kind of know where to go, and we have enough relationships. You can usually get people, and it's just funny that's happened a lot. Yeah, that, it has happened a lot. I don't really I haven't really ever articulated that thought in my head before, but it's true. And sometimes we give sort of wordless eye directions, like yeah. uh, Demarcus Caddy's over there or yeah, whatever yeah. it might be. Yeah, and like if you see a clump of reporters, that's where you shouldn't be. Yeah. I mean, I, I've I've known that for a long time, and so yeah. um, I, we're both always looking for the side doors because that's let's face it. Now everyone knows who won the Masters globally instantaneously so our only value is to give people something different um, yeah to take them into butler cabin for the celebration with bubba watson's family or uh whatever it may be like we otherwise what are we even doing there and yeah I, I know you embrace that as well it's neat because as you're saying it i'm thinking about it, it's 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 they've made the whole campus bigger but it's still a pretty cozy environment you know there's there's in front of the locker room or, you know, in front of the clubhouse. There's the back of the clubhouse. There's the parking lot. There's not that many places to go. And there's a lot of people. There's family, there's caddies, instructors, hangers on. And they all have a take on the guy. Yeah. Uh, 
So it lends itself to what we like to do. And tournament week, you're never going to get the guy. You know, the, the player, especially at Augusta, because they run through this whole, all the different, the, the green, two green jacket ceremonies, the dinner with the members. Like, you really have to go to the secondary people because they're on your side of the ropes. You can get the wife and the swing coach and the college roommate and the kid. Um, the, the players out there playing golf, and they're very hard to get. So it's, it's the secondary people that, that really tell the story. And people are off their phones, so they have no choice but actually have a conversation with you. Yeah. It's true. Uh, who, did you write the game story when VJ won and Lipsy got the uh, parking lot quote? Yeah. You did? I did. That, that, that's wow, that's a great moment. To ex tell, the, tell the listeners about that. Well, so this is for the few who don't remember it. That's correct. So VJ wins a Masters in 2000. Retroactively, you know, he denies Tiger the, the Grand Slam because Tiger won the other three that year. But, um, and there is this choreography on Sunday night. So at... After, the, after you win and you do the, the outdoor and the indoor ceremony, and you go to Butler Catlin and celebrate with your family, and then you go to dinner with the members, and after all that, you're finally released. It's you know, 9, 10 o'clock. And in the old days, around the turn of the century, when we had a lot of staff and we had um, the luxury of bringing you know, more bodies, we'd, whoever was writing the game story for SI would have their, their reporter. And you know, their, you're on, on trunk slamming duty. Like, basically, you had to follow the guy until they slam their trunk and drive away. That was kind of... And you probably had that role in an earlier life, maybe, or not? A little bit. I'd, I helped Riley a few times, like, 96, 97, and then I wound up doing other things. But uh, it's kind of fun because if you're in that role, you don't have the pressure of writing the story. So you could just run around and try and get everything, and uh, it's a treasure hunt, really. And um, so a guy named Rick Lipsy, who Michael and I both know, he was he was on our staff and that was his job in 2000 and vj singh after he wins the masters and we all know vj had a, a long arduous journey to the green jacket you know it was the one-year suspension from the asian tour and the, the self-imposed exile under a mango tree in borneo and all that stuff um he 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 wins he it's one of the great rags richest story in all of sports he wins the masters and so he's he's walking to his car whatever it's 10 o'clock at night and he he says Kiss my ass, everybody. And Lipsy was there and heard it. What does it even mean? <laughs> okay, so this is an interesting question. Is, was, he, was he talking to the ghost of Bobby Jones? Uh, his, his agent was there. Was, were they talking about, you know, people who want VJ to come to a house party? It was a little ambiguous, and Rick did not go up to VJ and say, who, who is that in reference to? He, he didn't quite have it. And so... This was one of the first game stories I did because by now Riley was doing the back page column. And so I have, I have this quote, but I don't really know what it means. And it's so inflammatory. You know, it's gonna, it, it, it would define how people think of VJ and the Masters. I didn't use it in my story. Oh, you did not? I did not. And our, our boss, James P. Harry, was flummoxed by that decision. But because I wasn't there and I didn't really know the context and Rick couldn't be certain. It, it's a big difference. Is he talking to the Gus and Asshole membership or is he talking to uh, the people back in Fiji who he's estranged from? Can I interrupt for one quick second? I want you to. I would like the listeners to note how responsible the sentence you just said is in actual serious fact. Uh, because it would be so easy just to use it and I would have used it because it is what he said, and Lipsy was a very dependable reporter. But the fact that you chose not to use it because you didn't understand the context, I think says a lot about how we approach, how you approach your craft. 
Yeah. Please well, continue. I appreciate that. But there was there was a kid from the Augusta Chronicle whose name I can't remember. Um, he Joe Poznanski. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> what was this guy's name? He didn't last Oh, was one. it Mike um, who wrote a column? The guy, the, the baseball writer who bought a thrift shop green jacket one year and walked around, I guess, <laughs> national <laughs> wrote about it. guy, they with the goatee. No, no, no. Squat. This guy wasn't a guy. No, no. Somebody else. doesn't matter. Guy. Anyway, he, he wrote a column about it because he heard it too. Or maybe he got it secondhand. I'm not sure. So then our boss, Jim Harry's like, it's out. So for the the, the nascent CNNSI.com. I mean, the Augusta, I wrote, oh, the Augusta paper also had the quote? Yeah, and I think they used it a day later. I don't think it was in their Monday wow. edition. I think it was in their Tuesday edition. Um, if, this is all a long time ago. but So I wound up writing something later in the week. But um, it, was, it was an interesting moment. But those are the kind... Now, I might actually use it because... It's so interesting, and I have more um, comfort in my position w within the, the the golf media and, and life itself. You know, I was just starting out, and I knew that there would be so much pushback from from BJ's people. And since I wasn't there, I was just like, I just don't, I just didn't feel comfortable using it. But um, anyway, that was an interesting episode. So yeah, that that's well. Let's talk about Jenkins since we're kind of on the topic yeah. of. The craft, you know, this is gonna be the first Masters without Dan Jenkins since I guess the 50s. 1950. He came in 51. He was there every year until 2018. It's really incredible, and there's there were so many memorials in the wake of his death. We don't have to quite go over all all of the things that made Jenkins Jenkins, but he was an institution at the Masters, he and um, it's it's gonna be a different feeling because I used to see him as you would in the press room, and he was always in kind of those like. Safari shirts. I don't know. How would you describe it? Yeah, they were like safari. Yeah. He needed pockets for the cigs and the glasses, and he had both. Yeah, exactly. And he'd always step outside. He's always smoking cigarettes. And it was like, you know, it was uh, he was a living legend among us. And um, however you feel about some of his stories or some of his books, like it was, it was, he was a link to an era of golf I didn't get to experience, and, and you only got a taste of. And it was cool to have him there, and he's going to be sorely missed. And truly a link to Byron Nelson and Ben Hogan and Sam Snead, because he knew all three, but Hogan particularly. Yeah, and to hear his stories and um, to get his, you know, sort of mumbled one-liners was it was a pleasure. And he 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 was not he was not this remote figure. I mean, he, I mean, everyone you'd see all these young reporters would want to go up and say hi to him, and he was always very gracious. And if you were sitting at a table at lunch. You know, he'd include you in the conversation, and he was he was fun to be around. Yeah. But yeah. I have a friend named T-Bone Burnett. Well, a lot of people know that name. Very well-known musician. And um, he grew up in Fort Worth, and he uh, he worshipped Jenkins. Maybe that's not the right word. Growing up in Fort Worth, you know, a half a generation behind Jenkins, seeing that Jenkins had taken on the world out of Fort Worth gave uh, T-Bone the idea that, that he could do the same. And uh, so he was a significant figure to him, but he only met him once in probably like the late 50s. And, you know, there's no cell phones at, uh, at Augusta National. So Jenkins was there in, in, in the press room, and T-Bone was on the golf course. And I said to Jenkins, you know, would you like to see T-Bone? And, and Jenkins said yes, and T-Bone definitely wanted to do it. 
but without cell phones, I couldn't orchestrate it. And I had a sinking, awful feeling that it was going to be the last chance to do it. And of course, I don't even know why I'm telling the story, but it, but it's just the nature of life and life without cell phones in Augusta National. And uh, I don't know, it's a lot of, like Augusta National, you know, that you get close, but you don't really get to the end often there. I know. It is the no cell phone thing. For a long time, I was really bitter about it because it, it, it cuts us off from our readers um, and you can't tweet and you see something on the golf course that's amazing, you want to share it with the world and by the time you get back to the press room five hours later, it's old news. You can't correspond with your editors and your colleagues to coordinate coverage because especially in the internet era, we have five or six people there. You need to know what other people are writing so you're not duplicating their efforts. And It was always a drag, but I've come in the last few years to embrace it because it's sort of a pleasure just to go out there watch golf, talk, find people in the crowd to talk to, um, and, and just settle into the rhythm of Masters Week. So I, I've reluctantly, I've, I've bought into the whole thing. It is like a vacation, not carrying around that ball and chain. <laughs> yeah. But you know what's funny is they still have that phone bank down in Amen Corner. They mm -hmm. have a bank of pay phones, but they're free. You can call anywhere in the world. And so... I will now like write down on a on my notebook people's like I don't even know my daughter's numbers you know it's just like uh -huh. you just it's just you just look them up in your phone directory like so I'll actually write down and our colleagues' numbers and every now and then I will call people from Amen I always call my dad it's sort of as a joke and um, it's just kind of funny people wait in line to use these payphones and so you can sort of sort of in a pinch <laughs> find a phone but um, you know it's it's just a it, it's a it's a unique part of that week. I had a hard time getting, uh, he's really a great guy, but he's not great about returning calls. A guy named Scott Tolly, who's Jack's, Jack Nicholas's right-hand man. And he wasn't returning my calls, wasn't returning my calls. So then I called him from an Augusta National uh, clubhouse phone, area code 706, and he picked up on the first ring. I said, Scott, how are you? And he's like, ooh. He thought it was Jack calling from the veranda. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, this is something we should tell the listeners because it's really one of the pleasures of the week is, Amazingly, Augusta National lets reporters into the clubhouse, and there's a back porch on the second story, the veranda, where everyone goes to eat lunch. Not everyone, a lucky few go to eat lunch, and we've enjoyed many a fine meal up there. Many fine meals, and you, we've sat next to Jack. Uh, you know, the Billy Casper would hang there. Yeah, the, the play, Watson was a regular. Yeah, so describe you, the Spaniards in that setting. Um, well, the, they sit really close and they, they talk to each other in like hushed tones. Like there's, it seems like there's always a secret on their lips, which I love. But, yeah. Um, Plus the red wine. Yeah, red wine in effect. Um, and it's it's an interesting thing when they you know a couple of years ago when they built that ridiculous new press center f far away from the clubhouse. I think and the food is great. They have a lot of terrific food now. Or it used to be the food options were limited. Um, I think one of their motivations that has worked is to get the reporters to eat for free in the press room, where if you go in the clubhouse, you have to pay. And it can be a hassle. You won't have to wait half an hour for a table. And um, so it's, I haven't been eating there nearly as much. Let, let's make a resolution that we'll do it again this Definitely. year. I will say it, the peach cobbler is the best I've ever had. It is. And, and then it's also this, the same waiters are there year after year. Curtis. Cur okay, Curtis. Curtis, very, very 
handsome. smarter than anybody on that campus. He he knows all. He knows all the bodies. He's are a school high. teacher, I believe. Really? Yeah. I think it's only a one-week gig for him. Yeah. I may be mistaken, but that's my memory. Yeah. Well, and there's there's another gent whose name I can't remember, but Amy Mickelson told me that Phil wrote him a letter of recommendation. The guy was up for like a promotion with, you know, to become. Uh, more of a management position at Augusta National and after all these years they've developed this kinship and so Phil actually put in a good word for the guy which I think is very nice yeah it's interesting insight into Phil yeah Uh, there's a million things to say about Phil but he is a human being and he connects to other human beings and uh, you know he just doesn't have the blinders on and I think that's why it's great for him that he's an Augusta National member for life, basically. You know, not technically, but as what would they call an honorary member, I suppose. Um, but it suits his personality, you know, the hangout personality. Mm-hmm. That's a neat story. I didn't know that. Did the guy get the job? I have to, I have to do some follow-up reporting. I do not know, but <laughs> I hope so. Um, well, okay, let, since, since we, we've raised Phil and, and his, his psychological twin tiger, they're – they're both playing pretty good golf. Do we? Do they have one last hurrah at this Masters or another? I mean, are we going to get one more run from either of them? Run? Yeah. Like, like they could contend. Is that what you mean by yeah, run? Yeah, like the, the bitter Definitely. end. Yeah. Oh, I would think. I don't think we're near the end. Really, truly. I mean, Phil. Phil swings great. Phil hits great, and Phil putts pretty darn well still. I mean, when we saw Pebble was that yeah. wasn't smoke and mirrors. That was quality golf, and. Uh, you know, of course, knowledge does count for a lot there. So contend, like Fred contended, I would think Phil could, con- could, could you know, somewhere in the next uh, five, six years, could, cont- could Phil contend twice? Sure. Could he win? I don't think so. I'd be shocked, but it, it's fun, fun seeing it. I think it's easier for Phil than Tiger, probably. What do you think? Well, also, Fred would always contend till Saturday afternoon. I mean, he was he wasn't, yeah. the, and then he would he would fall away. He was never there till like the bitter, bitter end. But. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I'm just saying play good golf for 60-odd sure. holes. Yeah, or even 72, but just, you know, sometimes you just get beat. But um, I, I th- feel like Phil has a better chance than Tiger. There's something about Tiger's game right now that looks it looks hard. Mm-hmm. Tiger's making it look mm-hmm. difficult, and he's making mistakes. I mean, like that quad at the players, I mean, when just the, the last time he had played it, you know, on the previous final round, when he was nibbling and he had a, he probably wasn't going to win, but he was right there. He hit in the water again. Like, those are the big misses. And uh, I, there's almost like a little, he looks a little mechanical to me. Maybe it's just because his body's not feeling good from day to day. But there's just a freedom to the way Phil plays. And I think Augusta's the ultimate canvas for that kind of artistic expression. It's, you can't be thinking about anything other than just scoring and, 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 and freewheeling. And, and just Phil, that's more his game right now. And he's hitting, it, he's hitting it as long as Tiger. And he's putting better. And in the iron game is pretty comparable. But... Um, I just feel like like Phil has a little secret sauce there. I completely agree with that assessment. I, f- I feel like Tiger wants it too much, and it means too much to him, and he needs it too much. And those and that's all understandable given the uh, given given the course of his uh, recent life. Whereas for Phil, it would be freakish and great to be the oldest Masters winner, but it's not really going to change his life. It's just going to Im- improve his life. Um, and you're right, Tiger. Tiger looks tight at times. Even this is weird to say. Even if you can compare the '97 Tiger with the 2000 Tiger, 2000 Tiger was perfect, but '97 Tiger was free. 
and he won by 12. He was still learning how to play golf, and he won by 12. I know, it's That's unbelievable. That's a joke. Yeah, no, it's true. When those highlights pop up, just the joy he played with. Like, Tiger looks grim out there on the golf course. You know, he had a, he had a little moment of levity with Kevin Na when it didn't matter at the players, but it's like most meditated yeah. joviality. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, every time I see him on the golf course, granted he's not playing that well, but his face looks tight, his, his body language isn't great. Like, it doesn't look like it's, it's that much fun for him. Golf looks like a struggle right now. And that can change. Uh, and he was always a grinder. I mean, he always, he always exuded effort. But um, I, it's been neat watching him for, what you know, a year plus now trying so hard and seeing how much comp competitive golf uh, means to him. Whereas Phil obviously turns it on, turns it off, depending on how he's feeling that week. And if he knows it's he's like McEnroe or any great tennis player. It's like, if it's not their week, they're just going to conserve, move on. Yeah. Tiger doesn't have that. And, uh, you know, there's so much. We've covered Tiger's whole career. Uh, there's so much that's annoying about him, I guess would be one way to describe it. But there's much, much to admire. And this road back, the effort with everybody, with reporters and fans, and, but, but particularly on the golf course and on the driving range, it's been neat to see. But but that one thing that you're talking about, that freedom factor that would actually, and what shows up in the putting too, of course, yeah. uh, uh, down the stretch. You know, even, even you saw it at Eastlake. I mean, when he had that Eastlake tournament all but one, he started playing some really bad golf and could have frittered it all away and was kind of lucky that Justin Rose and Rory McIlroy were doing nothing to put any heat on him. But, I mean, it goes without saying we're not going to see Vintage Tiger again. But it's, I don't know, it's amazing we're having the conversation about Tiger and Phil all these years <laughs> later. It, it, and, on one hand, but, it, and the other, do we really think either of them could win the Masters? I hate to say no, but... What do you think? Yeah, I mean, when all the, the Eastlake was incredible. It was just a phenomenal scene. It was cathartic for everyone. And Tiger's back. I said, I wonder if that's it. Like, the amount of effort it took for Tiger to get back to the mountaintop. Could he, could he summon that again and again and again? I mean, the, the physical toll of preparing, the, the mental anguish he went through of, you know, losing the British Open, losing the PGA Championship, um, just the grind on his body, the, um, you know, having to juggle his responsibilities as a single dad, the, the everything. Um, I had never thought it was a gimme that he was going to build on that and keep going. Like, I thought maybe it, in some ways it would almost be like, you know, 2013. He had to get back to number one post-scandal. Like, he had to get there. And then we, everything fell apart after that. And, you know, some people believe that, you know, injuries and back injuries are, are as much emotional as anything. You know, that's where the stress goes. And you can... It has more to do with your emotional life than your golf swing when, when things I – I, I don't know the answer to that, but, like, it kind of felt – like, 2018 felt to me like 2013. Tiger had something to prove, and he proved it. And now what? Right. He, um, he thinks or he tells us that uh, being in contention is like riding a bike, and he's got so much vast, vast experience, more than anybody by far double what anybody, including Phil, uh, has experienced. But it's not like riding a bike, because when he was in his prime, he looked forward to those five-footers for, for par, knowing that he could make it. And, you know, when what, a, what a dagger that was to the rest of the field, because he didn't miss them. Now he doesn't know, and he is going to miss some of them. 
and really, really hard to win at Augusta National. I mean, we see what every year we see the same thing, basically, whether it's Sergio or whomever, uh, Patrick Reed. Down the stretch, they make them. They don't miss them. They make them. <laughs> That's what Tiger did. That's yeah. what Big Jack did. That's what they all do. They make them. Uh, I don't know. I don't see Tiger just standing up there and making them. Because even post-scandal, post-fire hydrant, hydrant he's, missed, he's had chances, actually. Yes. And he hasn't made them yeah. on Sunday afternoon. And there's been some shocking misses. Like 2011, he missed a couple of three-footers on Sunday. That I mean, he had a chance to win that thing. And, yeah. Um, 2010, he missed some shorties. Even 13. Yeah. With that crazy year of 13, he got yeah. himself back into the thing. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, um, it's it's going to be fun to watch, though. I mean, when, when Tiger pegs it on Thursday at the Masters, there's just going to be an electricity. We've been very lucky. I mean, this guy is one of the most dynamic figures in the history of sport, and we've seen the whole thing unfold. Yeah. And here it is all these years later, and he's, he's still doing it. I know. <laughs> well, it's, I mean... That's one of the things I love about Phil is the longevity. I mean, it's, it's why I love Bob Dylan. It's why I love Philip Roth. I mean, these, it's, in, it's inspirational. Like, and it goes back Phil's to Phil's longevity is the most underrated story in all of golf. For 30 years, he has been a leading what, what, figure. In what the year game. did he win as an amateur on tour? 90, uh, 91? Yeah. It's 2018 or 19. He's still one of the best players in the world. Yeah. He's been one of the best players in the world for getting on 30 years. <laughs> it's incredible. No major injuries, yeah. you know. Well, that's, I mean, that's how I feel about Dan Jenkins, too, is, like, I think there was a, when I was a young punk, I would, I would see him or Art Spander, like, God, I hope that I'm not going to be haunting press rooms when I'm 80. Like, I, there was something tragic about it in my mind. And now as I've gotten older, not that I'm that old, but I would see them, I'm like, heck, yeah, man, these guys are still doing it. Like, it's yeah. still, it's, it was cool, and it's still cool. I still see, you know, Art's California guy, I see him at, the Crosby clam bake and I see him around and I mean he's half blind and he's but he's still out there doing it and I mean there's there's that aspect of just going to work and doing the job and it's it's pretty cool you know this Stephen Wright line how about the stones still doing it after all these years Fred Barney <laughs> that is I was just watching almost famous Good movie. Such a good movie. Underrated movie. Totally. I, well, you especially. It, I mean, I feel like it, I can relate to it, but you especially as a 19-year-old kid intern or whatever you were. Yeah, yeah, it resonates. But there's that funny thing where he's uh, – it's actually um, – what's that late-night comedian? Um, it's Jimmy Tony? Fallon. Uh-huh. He has that great cameo where he's like this this slick, like, record company executive, and he's giving the band a pep talk about, you know, we need to monetize your success, give up the bus, and start flying on the jet. He's like – He's like, if you you're, if you think Mick Jagger's gonna be out there shimming around when he's fifty, you're crazy. You know, that's funny. <laughs> it, I mean, it's obviously done the whole things with a wink, but um, you know that movie captures the spirit of what it is like to be a young reporter writer trying to make it more than anything I've ever read or seen. And yeah. I don't know why it it got dissed by so many people. Is that a Cameron Crowe movie? I believe. Yeah, well, because yeah, he, Cameron, he was Cameron. Yeah, yeah. I mean. No, that's a good one. What happened to the kid who played that role? I never knew his name that then or now. That was his first ever movie. I think he just peaked. He was, that, was, that was it. So what else do we need to discuss about this Masters? Well, we haven't talked about Daniel Berger's chances, in other words. <laughs> and let's not. Well, actually, we have a... I mean, there's, you know, would you be shocked if Bubba just stepped up there and won the thing? Of course not. Not he's shocked. He's excellent at golf, and, yeah. he's, and he's excellent at the, that, playing that course. And he's left-handed. Yeah, and he hits it high and long. 
Yeah. Why I will not? say, I f this feels like the most wide-open Masters in a really long time because you have a dozen guys you could anoint as Rory, the favorite. John Rahm, yeah, Tommy Fleetwood. Justin Rose. The, the list of foreigners goes on. Brooks, oh, Brooks Kepka. Oh. I mean, that's a pretty good golf course for him. Wow. Um, interesting. And, I mean, Jordan Spieth, who's in the depths of despair, but he went, he went to Augusta last year playing horrible and almost stole it. Ricky Fowler almost stole it. I mean, you can, you can throw out 10, 12, 14, 16 names and say, this is my favorite, and it's credible. Yeah. And you can put Tiger and Phil on that list. And so I think it's going to be a fun one. And I, I think we should make a promise to the listeners that we'll try and do a recap from the Waffle House on Washington Road Sunday night, if everything goes our way. Absolutely. All right. I can, I, Michael's attention is flagging. He somehow ate a banana during this podcast. I don't even think the microphone's picked up. It was, that was quite a performance. <laughs> it was stealth. <laughs> All right, Michael, thanks for doing this. Delighted to do it. I'm glad that, we noted Jenkins yeah. and uh, some other things and uh, good times. Good times. All right. Thanks for listening. As always, um, we will bring you more podcast content for golf.com. This is Alan Shipnuck and Michael Bamberger signing off.